Did three extraterrestrials really crash land their circular spaceship on a farm just outside of Cape Girardeau, Missouri in mid-April of 1941? Was this stunning recovery then taken to a secret hiding place beneath perhaps the most recognizable building in the world? Was an aspect of the scientifically examined alien craft propulsion system applied to the U.S. nuclear weapons program to help win World War II? That is a quote from Paul Blake Smith's book, Mo 41, The Bombshell Before Roswell. I came to Bill with this episode idea at least, at least a year, year and a half ago. Oh, this, this would have been a very early episode. Based right here in Missouri. And for various reasons, we just never got around to, to doing it until uh, we sat down in the recording studio last time. My fault. Bill's I'm raising sorry. his hand. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to acknowledge Bill's raising his hand. Bill fought me on this one. But it is one that goes very close in hand with some of the most recent national news, uh, some of our recent podcasts that we've dropped, uh, UFOs and a, a crash site, actually, that occurred in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Cape Girardeau lies just due east of our little home base here in Lebanon, about a four-hour drive. And tonight's story is of a UFO crash site that occurred there, similar to the most famous, or some may say infamous, Roswell. But now, that took place back in 1947. I'd speculate almost all of our listeners are quite familiar with that whole story of Roswell. And we did an episode and, if you weren't. And so. we did if you didn't, yeah. So what if I told you that the UFO crash we're going to be talking about took place in the spring of 1941? Yep, you heard me. Like six years before Roswell's sensational story took the nation by storm. Right here in our home state of Missouri. Join us tonight as we explore the unknown and unravel one of the best documented UFO cases to date. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten, and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Columbia Daily Tribune article by Bill Wickersham in 2015. He writes, on this website, www.ufocenter.com, the Seattle-based National UFO Reporting Center, N-U-F-O-R-C, abbreviations, has accounted for more than 1,857 UFO sightings observed through most sections of Missouri since the early 1950s. Because only about 5% of UFO witnesses actually report their experiences, the total number of Missouri UFO encounters is no doubt much, much higher. An account of a UFO crash in southeast Missouri preceded the well-known Roswell, New Mexico crash by almost six years. In 1991, the late Leonard Stringfield, an early UFO investigator and former civilian consultant to the UFO operations publication on a UFO activities and investigations. The article was based on information he received from a Charlotte man. Uh, she was a young girl living in the Cape Girardeau area and a granddaughter of part of the characters that we're going to be talking about tonight. Now, at the time, Charlotte's grandfather, the Reverend William Huffman, was a pastor of Cape Girardeau's Red Star Baptist Church. And I'm going to tell you, that guy has a story. 
Mm. had a story. He's had passed story. since then. Before we really jump into the story, I do want to say I, I quoted from Paul Blake Smith's book, Mo 41, The Bombshell Before Roswell. This is the book that I think originally brought this all to, to mine and Eric's attention. That's how I found out. It. That's how I referred yeah. to it as Mo 41, which, by the way, is stands for Missouri 1941. Yeah. And so he's kind of the, I mean, he, I was going to say he's the authority, but let's be honest, he literally wrote the book on this one. One of the things he said is in the course of his interviews is, uh, quote, everyone was told, do not talk about this. This is a matter of national security. It didn't happen. Getting hard evidence for this has been like trying to nail jello to the wall. And it's very frustrating. And like you said, this is, this is prior to Roswell, which Roswell blew up and became this huge, huge deal. You know, this, this predates that. You said it was well-documented, and it is in a way, but in at the way. same time... It wasn't at the time. The documentation is not there even. There's a lot about this story, and really, before we, we just jump in with both feet and get into this one, I will say there are a lot of people that believe this never happened. Yes. That this story has been made up. Now, the story is related by someone that I would assume you can trust, a guy who was educated, a guy who was known to be honest and truthful. He told the story one time. That was it. You know, the minister. Most of the story comes from Huffman's account, and, and that is mostly related by the, the Paul Blake Smith. So a lot of the detail comes from one place. Now, it has been confirmed by other outside sources. We'll talk about that later. But a lot of people say that, you know, while it is well-documented, a lot of people say that it's not enough. Right. And, you know, like you said, this UFO crashed west of the Cape Girardeau airport between Cape Girardeau and Chaffee. My stepbrother and stepsister used to live down in that region, not too far from Chaffee. So I've been down to that area without, you know, this is prior to me knowing about this story. And it is quite a drive, especially if you're sitting in the back of a pickup truck. <laughs> Trust me. You can't ride in the back of a pickup truck, you Bill. You can't do it now. Oh, okay. Dude, I rode in the back of a pickup loaded down with firewood kind of crammed in a corner. I have ridden in the back of a pickup <laughs> truck standing up holding entertainment centers to hope that they didn't fall out and crash. My own safety was thrown out the window. Literally, no one cared. It was just don't let that piece fall out. My dad, <laughs> my dad drove me, my brother, and a group of my stepbrother's teenage friends to St. Louis to the zoo. In the back of a pickup. Wow. So. I wonder how far they'd make it today. Yeah. Well, there was a shell, so you couldn't see inside. Oh, okay. But anyway, so I'm, I'm kind of familiar with the area. But yeah, you have this. This is basically the story of William Huffman, Reverend Huffman. And, and like you said, he's from the Red Star Baptist Church there in Cape Girardeau. At approximately 9 p.m. to 9.30 in that range, on this night, the phone rang at the house of Minister William Huffman. Huffman, at that time, was age 52. He was married to his wife. His wife's name was Floyd, uh, age 43, and they had two sons, Guy, who was 24, and Wayne, who was 22, who all lived together in the small mining town of Cape Girardeau. Now, also living with them at this time was their daughter-in-law, married to Guy, and the young couple was expecting their first child in just a few weeks. Now, Charlotte accounts... Uh, Grandfather received a call on April 1941 from the local sheriff's office asking him to travel with them to a site of an airplane crash, as it was described to him, outside the city limits. And he, he was being asked to tend to the victims and do last rites last if rites. necessary. Yes. And so, again, this, that may sound a little unusual, but for a minister, that's, that's just part and of the job. Literally his calling. That's yes. What he's there. That's what he does. So he had been prepped and asked to uh, come as a minister. 
to to help do this and to read the last rites, as Bill said. Now, the sheriff told Reverend Huffman a car would be sent to pick him up at his house and take him to the site, which was approximately 10 to 15 miles away. It was not a police car. It was the not. The car arrived was not a police car. It was not an ambulance. And the license plates, he remembers, were from out of state. However, he does not remember or he did not relate what state they were from. But he does remember that was a little strange. And it was a dark-colored car. I did hear reference to the men in black in a couple places. Definitely. So. This kind of leads yeah. alludes to that, <laughs> I believe. You know. So, like he says, about 15 miles out of town. They drove about 15 miles, at which point they pulled off to the side of the road and parked, and then they had to walk another quarter mile to the scene of the crash, where Huffman stated they came to a field that was burning. When Reverend Huffman arrived on the scene, police officers, firefighters, FBI agents, emergency medical crew, and numerous military personnel, presumably from the Army Air Force Base nearby in Sykeston, were already on the scene. There were also photographers there, and that's an important detail, too. Yes. My, my next sentence was actually, photographers that seemed to be professional by nature was also set up with equipment. Um, that, that'll be important later. Very important. Now, they were viewing what Huffman described as a disc-shaped object, the interior of which contained a small metal chair, gauges, dials, pulleys, but also, interestingly, hieroglyphic-like inscriptions and writings around the inside. Now, Huffman was shocked by what he saw. Now, he was familiar with aircraft. He had flown in a wide range of both military and passenger airplanes. So he... Now, he was ex-military. He knew right away that this was not a plane. Like you said, it was, it was saucer-shaped. It had a shiny metallic finish. I mean, literally looked like nothing he'd ever seen. Like you said, it was cracked open. He could look inside. But he was prepped to say, you're going to go read the last rites to three pilots Well, they, of an yeah. airplane he, crash. He thought he, was, he thought he was tending to the victims of an airplane crash. He had heard talk on the scene about a ball of fire being seen previous to the crash. And of course, there was debris in the field that had set the field on fire. The area where the, the saucer had crashed was burned. But to Huffman, in, in, in his own words, almost more shocking than the craft, well, I say in his own words, the words that his daughter or granddaughter related. Relayed. Almost more shocking than the craft were the injured occupants of said craft. Now, there were three creatures at the scene laying on the ground, two just outside the craft and one just a little further away. They seemed to have escaped being burned. But no, they, they said no burn marks no burns. and no yeah. apparent physical yeah. damage. Yeah, they, they appeared to be in rough shape, but there was no obvious injuries. They weren't like bleeding out or yeah. anything. So Huffman described the little creatures as being roughly four feet tall, built like children. He said their bodies were covered head to toe in, a, in something that looked like wrinkled aluminum foil. Now, he assumed that these were suits, but again, he differentiated. He couldn't tell. Maybe it was their skin. I would assume they were suits. No. They seemed to have no hard bone structure. They were described as soft looking. Gelatinous almost. They had gray hairless skin, large heads, big black almond shaped eyes that were tilted upwards at the outside corners. Tiny mouths, indistinguishable noses, and no ears at all. They had long, thin arms with long, thin fingers and long, thin legs. Now, two had already died by the time Huffman arrived there. They were, they were already gone. And he said it wasn't obvious what had killed them due to the lack of you know, noticeable injuries. But one was still alive and breathing. And despite being terrified of the creature's appearance, the reverend you know, did what did he his, thought was the right thing. His job, his diligence. He knelt over the body of the still-living alien and he prayed over it, not knowing what else to do. Now, he did note when he related the story later, and, and I'll get, we'll get to that, that he never did touch the little creature, 
you know, he doesn't know what's going on exactly. But as he prayed over the remaining creature, it died like literally right in front of him. Now, after he had finished with the first creature, when I say creature, alien, however you want to phrase it, he did move uh, over to pray over his two fallen friends. And after he had prayed over all three, he was taken to a nearby location where the military swore him to secrecy. Mm-hmm. And they strongly warned him never to discuss what he had seen with anyone. Now, he can't, he, again, he's a, he's a man of faith. He's an honest man. He said this, they, he was told, this didn't happen. You didn't see it. This is of national security and is to never be talked about again. Those were the exact words. He doesn't know what everybody else was told, but those were the exact words that he was told. As they're wrapping up and everything's kind of been processed, if you will, the military comes in, loads everything up. They take all the evidence. As they do. So to quote from Smith's book here, ever since it's a big mystery. Where did they take the physical evidence? The bodies, the debris, the crashed vehicle that was cracked open, which Reverend Huffman said had little gauges on a kind of instrument panel and tiny little seats, and some hieroglyphic writing on a silver band inside the cockpit. He couldn't make it out. He thought this was all very mysterious. After Reverend Huffman performed the last rites over all three of the victims, two men gently lifted one of the creatures. I'm assuming this is the one that literally was alive when he arrived. Uh, I'm assuming that. And the guys, to give you an idea of, of what they kind of grabbed, like one hand under the armpit and then the other yeah. hand holding the, the yeah, kind of holding the, hand the was arm the wrist. and the armpit both on so opposite sides. So it looked sides. like he was standing up with his arms out. Yes. It was at this exact instant when someone in the crowd of the people snapped an alleged Polaroid snapshot photo. That photo was taken by a Garland D. Fronabarger, and the government did not get their hands on that particular photo. Uh, which the granddaughter of Reverend Huffman, Charlotte Mann that we had mentioned, stated she remembered seeing and even held this photo at least 20 times in her lifetime yep. as her grandfather, Reverend Huffman, gave it to her father, Guy Huffman, many years later. Well, she said they had it like framed on a shelf with other little knickknacks around. I mean, it was just it like you'd keep any family photo. Yeah, yeah, but it wasn't just like some loose picture in a drawer it sounded yeah. like it was actually hung somewhere displayed maybe in their bedroom or somewhere maybe private i don't know a little bit about Fronebarger. he was a member of the reverend's congregation yes. he had this picture he wasn't sure what to do with it he he knew it was something he knew it was important a he, couple nights had passed since the crash yeah. and so so he he made a copy of it he kept one for himself he made a copy he gave the other to the reverend because, again, he, he trusted him. He knew he could give it to him, and he knew he was somebody else who was on the scene. So it wasn't like he was revealing information to somebody who wasn't there. Right. He wasn't spilling the beans, so to speak. He was just giving this little In piece of evidence. In case something would to happen the, yeah. to the original, someone else that was there who saw exactly what I saw gets a copy of this picture. Miss Mann, the granddaughter, was never told the story directly, but remembers the topic would come up from time to time with her family, especially with her father, or very close friends, that, you know, Reverend Huffman was, was there and would, um, from time to time, bring this photo out and show it. Uh, she remembers being in other rooms overhearing the story. Now, again, this wasn't the Reverend telling the story. This was no, no. his son. The Reverend, when he got home that night, his wife was awake, his kids were awake. He walked in. He was obviously shook up. They said he was in shock was the way they described it. He Imaginably, had, yes. He had experienced something that he really just was still processing, you know, and it, and it was completely outside of the norm. He told that story that night to them. They knew One something time. was wrong. They kind of wanted him to, they, they wanted to make sure he was okay. He told the story and he told it a single day. He, he told him, I think at the time, almost his exact words were like, look, I'm going to tell you this. 
and then I'll never say it again. Yes, one time he and took, one time only. After that, he took the story to his grave. He never repeated it. Mrs. Mann does remember as a child, again, that they brought this photo out from time to time. She remembers hearing bits of the story from another room. While she states it was a neat story in her younger years, she really, for whatever reason, didn't pay it a lot of attention. And I guess if you kind of grew up around it and especially, I don't know, it just kind of got muted out and it wasn't, it wasn't awe striking anymore. It was old news for her. Now, this photo would go to vanish when the family later moved to Kansas City area where a neighbor who was alleged as a photographer and worked with photography asked to borrow it to make a copy. Now, would this be Walter Wayne Fisk? Walter Wayne Fisk, who then disappeared with the photo for decades. Well, this guy apparently led something of a double life. There, there's rumor that Fisk was an advisor to the president. And that would certainly explain why he'd want to get a hold of that photo and make it disappear. But this was a neighbor, what was described. And like, from what I'm hearing of it, like the next day, the house is cleaned out. They're gone. I mean, just literally yeah, the, vanished. Well, they said the guy was like a family friend, but apparently, yeah, yeah. I mean, under the circumstances. How close of a family friend could you have been? I Had he been there for a while? I, I That part was really weird. Yeah, it, it was kind of hard to understand. But like, I mean, maybe they didn't know him as well as they thought they did. Yeah. Now. If you remember, this was a copy of the original that was taken. So there's still hope that there's at least two copies possibly out there floating around. Now, there is a version of this photo that has made the rounds, and, and it has been shown to Charlotte Mann. And the version has, um, like, both the guys in, like, lab coats or something holding the alien. And she says, no, 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 no. No, she specifically remembers. And in the drawing almost looks like, Police. She drew a sketch. Yeah, of she it drew a herself. sketch of it. it. Almost looks like police. Because in the pictures, she said they were wearing like lab coats. She goes, "No, no, these guys were wearing like long coats, but it wasn't lab coats." And and in the picture, they have like the the police style cowboy hat type deal, you know. And the guys in the pictures didn't have hats on. She says the picture that's making the rounds is not the one that it's she saw growing up. It's a fake. So now going back to the night of the crash, there was a couple, uh, what appeared to be high-level military suits, we'll call them, possibly men in black, uh, that spoke with all the individuals that night and over the following days. They visited the firemen, the firehouse, the first responders, and the families that were there that night. And again, they were all given some version of strict information saying, you did not see anything. This is a matter of national security. They got the fear of God put in them, so to speak. And given the large number of individuals that were present, it, it seemed like there was a big turnout. I mean, there was military personnel, there was firefighters, there was police, there was highway patrol, there was sheriff. There you was, had all the people that would normally be there for an emergency, plus the military. And then these photographers that also didn't seem like they belonged at the time. You know, again, that would, it's highly, highly likely that secret would eventually be revealed, leak out. Somebody somewhere is going to talk. And although the Reverend Huffman intended to keep his silent regarding the participation uh, in the affair, uh, it was not a complete success, obviously, or we wouldn't be talking about it today. Now, among those who eventually learned the secret was his wife, Floy, and his granddaughter, Charlotte. Well, his granddaughter learned the full story literally on her grandmother's deathbed. deathbed. She was dying of cancer and told it to her granddaughter, said, you need to hear this story. You need to know the whole story. And from what I understood, the, the, you know, the grandmother was you know, dying of cancer and bad health, had actually moved into Charlotte's house where she was helping care for her in her final days. And she had the insight that, you know, there's enough 
there's enough of this going around. I've never been told firsthand. Well, you know, grandfather's dead, went to the grandmother, who, from what I can tell, still had her wits about her, but said, you know, grandma, tell me the story. I want to hear it as firsthand as I can. Well, like you said, she'd already heard bits and pieces. She'd heard some of the story growing up. It became something of like a family folktale. But she'd also seen the picture. Like, she knew that there was something weird about the picture, too. Now, later on, and Bill may get into this a little bit more, uh, so we have Floy, who now tells the granddaughter, Charlotte Mann. Then there is a brother of the Cape Girardeau County Sheriff, Clarence Schrade, who uh, also confirms that in a sworn affidavit that you know his father was there as well. He was the brother of the guy who was serving as the Cape Girardeau County Sheriff at that time. He said he remembered talking to people about it. He, he remembered hearing about some sort of crash at the time. And yeah, he swore in a notarized affidavit. Like, yes, I've heard this story. Now, reaching out to the official channels, uh, when reached for comment about the crash, the FBI said, we, are, we were unable to identify records responsive to your request. Of course, they would say that. Mm. The Air Force had a similar response saying, that they researched their files and found no documentation concerning this event. The Air Force officials also said, a review of the histories for the Air Corps Training Detachment at Sykeston, Missouri was undertaken. Regrettably, no mention was found in the official unit histories regarding such an incident. Now, does that help disprove or does it help prove? Of course, we know that up until now, as far as we know, and continues on, that the government is not officially acknowledging UFOs that they have. But in recent months, a lot has come out. And you got a lot of whistleblowers saying that, like, yeah, these things have happened. And so, it's been going on for decades. And as we know, if you go back to our episode about Roswell, the initial reports of Roswell were about a crashed flying saucer. You can't hardly find that now. It, no, and that's gone. Like, seriously, I remember weather that balloon was... balloon now. Yeah, now it's a weather balloon. But like I said back then, the only st version of that story I had ever heard was UFO crash. And now, like, if you search it online, everything was like, oh, they say it was a UFO, but it was just, it was just a weather balloon. I think I talked about it in the podcast, but I actually did a, uh, a speech on the Roswell. I'm, again, I'm showing my geekiness at a young <laughs> age in school. And yeah, the, there was a mention that it was a weather balloon. Obviously, that came out very early. But at that time, everything, it was UFO, 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 yeah. crash site. But then when Bill and I started to do the research for that that episode of the podcast, yeah, like everything that you would find, those words had been omitted. Like if yeah. you did a search on UFO crash site Roswell, it would limit you to what you pulled up and it would Pretty like much. refer you to weather balloon. <laughs> and just to help further con confirm the facts of the story, records of the Red Star Baptist Church do confirm that Reverend Huffman was employed there during this time frame. Fire and police department records of the time show that something did occur that day and confirm that military personnel did come and claim all the evidence. So you do have multiple sources outside of just this family story that say, yeah, something happened that day. People were involved, but they don't go into any detail. I think, I think the, the police record, the fire record is just literally like attended to crash or something like that. Yes. Now that goes back to UFO researcher Leonard Stringfield. Uh, years ago, I, I want to say it was in the 80s or 90s, a UFO investigator, Leonard Stringfield, stumbled across this phenomenal story and spent many weeks right here in the Ozarks trying to get more information. So kind of what Bill was alluding to, a lot of that comes from him. He, he went back to the Cape Girardeau area. In particular, he had hoped to find any last survivors that might have been told the story directly. 
it was probably too late to get firsthand, but maybe he could at least get second direct hand. Uh, he interviewed Mrs. Mann at the time, the granddaughter to Reverend Huffman, and that's where a lot of her story came out. And that's where she shared that story that the grandma shared with her almost literally within days of her death on her deathbed, as well as interviewing her older sister who validated the account as well. And in addition, as Bill said, a secondhand witness, a descendant of the deputy sheriff that was present that night, it was also, he validated the story, said he heard it his entire time, you know, from his family. Uh, number two, Stringfield was able to validate the crash at the fire station. As Bill said, that same night, there was no mention, of course, of flying saucer or alien beings, but a plane crash. However, it was noted in the fireman's notes, the fire chief's notes, the military came in and took over. The military actually removed all the debris. In addition, it was written in the record, the fire chief and his entire crew, the members of the fire station, were all sworn to secrecy by the military not to speak of the matter. This was, again, of national security nature. As Bill also alluded to, they did find a Reverend William Huffman that was the minister at the Red Star Baptist Church in the area and that the family moved away in 1944 from the Cape Girardeau area. It does seem a bit odd. Why would the military be so involved if it was just a plane crash? However, the story that was given, maybe the plane crash was an enemy plane that was shot down or something they were reverse engineering or well, playing with. going to say, to play devil's advocate, this is 1941 prior to the end of World War II. You know, we were involved in a lot of stuff, and our enemies certainly would have wanted to try to undermine our national security, right? Right. Now. Would I say that we had enemy planes flying over Missouri? Seems pretty unlikely. That, that's a long ways inland but for... Could we have been flying something experimental? Could there have been, you know, something there? I mean, who knows? Now, there's a lot of mention that, you know, Air Force Base is nearby. And Sykeston uh, yeah. was close by. And you hear that in a lot of UFO stuff. I, I read something that I thought was worth mentioning. You know, it's, it's easy to throw that stone for the doubt and say, oh, well, there's a military base that was really close by. And yeah, they were, they just had an experimental plane. The flip side of that coin could be if aliens are coming, mightn't they want to check out what's going on at those nearby Air Force bases and increase air traffic, if you will, overhead? You know, the amount of unexplained activity, specifically UFO activity that happens around military bases is kind of crazy. And again, I like could see said, it go both ways. Devil's advocate, you know, me me playing, you know, the skeptic role, like, oh, well, it's an Air Force base. They got stuff flying around all the time. But like you said, I mean, if you're going to fly all this way and you're going to fly, let's stress that word, mm -hmm. aren't you going to want to know what we're flying? So you like, oh, can we handle that? Go to the source. I, I get it. Now, I will say that uh, Mrs. Mann, she doesn't seem to be a glory seeker at all. Uh, she's never asked for any money or sought to make proceeds from the story or the interview. She just, she shares that freely. So again, yeah. to me, that has a lot of merit. That has a lot of meaning. Reverend William Huffman died at the age of 71, September 15th, 1959. His wife, Floyd, lived almost 25 years later, passing away on September 16th, one day after her husband in 1984. Now, strange turn of events here. They are both buried literally within blocks of where Bill and I are sitting today in the recording studio here in Lebanon, Missouri, at our city cemetery. Their one son, Sergeant Wayne Huffman, died only a few years after the, the crash event during World War II. 
where he was serving his country. Their other son, William Guy Huffman, passed away in 1974, and he had the two daughters with his wife at the time, one which is Miss Mann that we've spoken about, in which we get a lot of the story's details that was passed on by her grandmother. So we have a couple other sources here. Uh, Leonard Stringfield, that I had mentioned, the UFO investigator, included uh, this story in a book that he wrote called UFO Crash Retrievals, The Inner Sanctum. Uh, I attempted to find this. I could not find it online, but apparently this is kind of a conglomeration of um, UFO crash retrievals, and it was just kind of a blurb, a mention, that the book wasn't entirely written about the Cave Girardeau incident. And then, of course, as Bill had talked about, uh, most recently, Paul Blake Smith, author of Mo 41, named simply after the abbreviations of Missouri in 1941, wrote the book The Bombshell Before Roswell. And back when I stumbled across this year, year and a half ago, I actually ordered his book and uh, found it very interesting. I purchased it for Kindle, but I never did read it. So is it headline time? Oh, do say it is. So apparently Eric and I stumbled upon the same headline here. So, um, from Spectrum News, April 10th, 2023, Missouri House bill would designate state UFO capital by Greg Palermo. Apparently, 50 years after a series of UFO sightings happened in southeast Missouri, a state lawmaker has introduced a bill that would make Piedmont the UFO capital of Missouri. Mm-hmm. State Representative Chris Dinkins has introduced House Bill 1261, which carries no financial impact for the state and would designate Piedmont with its population of 1,897 people the UFO capital of Missouri. According to Dinkins, between February and April of 1973, there were 500 reports to law enforcement of unidentified flying objects, with most of them happening around Clearwater Lake. These sightings brought attention to the region from around the country and inspired books and TV programs that have since investigated the claims. Dinkins told the Missouri House Special Committee on Tourism, quote, There really isn't much there besides lakes, rivers, streams, and springs, which bring thousands of people to the area each summer. With this bill, we are hoping to provide another avenue to attract more people to our area. This all came as the Piedmont Area Chamber of Commerce hosted a two-day event starting April 21st to mark 50 years since the sightings, called Close Encounters of the Piedmont Kind. (laughs) The event featured a parade, memorabilia, eyewitnesses, and food trucks. And local business owner Jessica McMahon said in the submitted testimony, quote, We have been astounded by the interest in our upcoming spring festival themed around the 50th anniversary of the UFO incidents of 1973. People are planning to attend from all over the nation, and the passing of this bill will enable us to continue to draw tourists in the future as well. Now, Dennis Hovis, former general manager and news director for KPWB Radio in Piedmont, testified the sightings have continued into the present day, or at least to have within the last two to four years. He told the panel, quote, Lights over the lake continue to be seen by nighttime visitors, especially fishermen. So our question is, are they back, or did they never leave? When asked if she had ever seen a UFO, Dinkins replied, I've seen things that I can't identify. I've seen things that I cannot identify in the sky. Did I think they were a flying saucer? No, I haven't seen anything I thought was a flying saucer. So, I mean, it's UFO, though. If you do a little internet search, the revised statutes of Missouri show that the measure was approved on July 6, 2023, and effective August 28, 2023, Piedmont will officially be the UFO capital of Missouri. Bada bang. Now, you do mention Clearwater Lake. Uh, there was, there's a lot of talk still today 
uh, similar to some of our other mentions we've done on the podcast, that possibly there is a UFO base under the water. Wow. And that uh, the UFOs are coming up out and going back into Clearwater Lake. We've heard that before in, in some other stories. I'm not familiar with Piedmont. I think I'm a native, obviously, to Missouri, but I don't think I've, don't ever, that I've ever been, been there. there. So I don't know the size of Clearwater Lake. I don't know the depth. I, I don't know those type of details. But some of the locals do kind of lean that way. They, they kind of put that in the, into the twist. But even today, there are still UFO reports here. There is a uh, Dr. Darren Bauer and his girlfriend that I found an interview with on a local news channel. Uh, his girlfriend is a retired Air Force Colonel Tracy Edwards. They actually shot a recent uh, video. This was in 2022, I believe, at their local farm. Now, the video shows a strange glowing light that stops abruptly in midair and then almost uh, has like sections of like where it would drop very quickly and stop and drop almost like rungs of a ladder. Uh, and then it would go back up in that same increments and then it would shoot to the left and back to the right. Now, the couple, they were just enjoying sitting on their front porch one evening when, when this occurred. They happened to be out there. And finally, after a few minutes, they, they pulled out their phone and started taking a little bit of video. And they questioned each other, what exactly are we watching? You know, Tracy Edwards, again, the girlfriend, she is a retired Air Force colonel. And, I mean, she states that she has never seen any craft maneuver like this. And one would think, I mean, obviously with her credentials and her past job, she might be a bit more privy to such things than the more commoners like ourselves. You would think. Now, the couple decided it was a bit unnerving, to say the least, and way too close for comfort. So they decided to retire in for the night, went inside, <laughs> and locked their doors, as they, in their words. Now, many of the citizens state this is uh, really not that uncommon, even today. There are several sightings reported, uh, as many as one to two a month, I think I actually found, of strange glowing orbs that will drop down out of the sky, sometimes with others almost like following it in a unison, and then fly around sporadically, often retracing the same maneuvers that Dr. Bauer and his girlfriend, the retired Air Force Colonel Edwards, described. I did have a quote here that almost is verbatim of words I've spoken in the past. So I wanted to share it again. One local UFO enthusiast has a shop there in, in the uh, area of Piedmont and they were going around to the citizens asking, Hey, do you believe in UFOs? Do you think your, your place is a UFO headquarters? Is there a base underwater? And she goes, I think we would be a bit self-centered to think we are the only living beings that exist in this entire galaxy or the cosmos. But am I saying there's an underwater UFO base that beaming ships up to the surface and back and forth in space? Probably not. So, Bill, we've talked a lot about UFOs through the years. Let's say you're right here, close by, driving, maybe driving home from work one night. That'd be a good time to see one as I leave. And All of a sudden, around your car illuminates something above, shining lights down on you. You know what it is. You saw Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the movie. You know exactly what we're talking about. What would be the first thing you would do? First thing? First thing. I mean, don't get me wrong. Calling you is really high on the list. I don't know. That's the first thing. <laughs> I, I'm touched. At least I'm maybe in the top ten. <laughs> um, I'm not going to lie. There'd be a touch of panic at first. But I would definitely, like, I'd have my phone out trying to take a picture. That's the first thing. Pull off the side of the road. I'd pull over and try to get, get a picture of something. I'd, I'd want proof that I saw it because, you know, there's too many people that are like, oh, I saw this thing, but you don't have any proof. And 
Yeah, I mean, I'd want something to say, hey, look, this is the picture, man. Well, and I, I stress the first thing because a lot of these oh, UFO encounters. you mean after crapping your pants? <laughs> <laughs> a lot of these UFO encounters, they only last moments. Yeah. So, I mean, literally, what what's the first thing that comes to mind? Because that may be the only thing you get to accomplish. Yeah. I've shared on another podcast uh, when Sarah and I, my wife was first married, we lived down at Falcon and we came home one night and we were unloading groceries and there was no sound whatsoever, but above like 300 feet, maybe above our vehicle, we saw a flying disc. I, I swear to anybody that had lights shining down, made no sound. We did have cell phones at that time, but they were very early flip phones, you know, well, yeah, with the, the technology. Early days of cell phones. But it was all over in a period of no more than probably 90 seconds. And I have no proof to this day, except for my wife also saw it and it was gone. I told you, my stepdad claimed he saw a UFO one time on his way to a doctor's appointment in Columbia. So he'd been driving between Dixon and Columbia. And, um, you know, again, there's no proof of that. At the time, that may have been just, just prior to cell phones, even. But uh, if they were if if they had them at all, that was like the day of the car phone. You know what I mean? And you know, there's there's no record that he saw it. Yeah, he doesn't. He can't vouch for that. He doesn't. There was never a picture or anything. And again, to see a UFO, an unidentified flying object, just means you saw something out of the ordinary. It doesn't necessarily mean you saw something alien. Right. Correct. You just saw something you couldn't Truly identify. Definition. And and I will tell you to this day, I get off work three thirty four o'clock in the morning. It's still dark outside, and every day that I get off work, as be- between the, my walk to the car and my walk to my door, I look at the sky, because I'm out it'd at be, night. It'd be a good time to see it. I'm out at night. If I'm going to see something, that'd be the time to see it. And is that why I look at the sky? 100% that's why I'm looking at the sky. <laughs> every night, I look at the sky for that, that short little thing, like maybe this will be the night. And again, if it ever is the night, you're going to hear about it like pretty quick-like. I hope to be on at least that top 10. Just give me a call oh, or, or my, text me. My wife is going to be the first because, you know, I'll go wake her up. <laughs> like, you're not going to believe it. And then she's going to get real mad at me because she has to get up at five to get ready for work. <laughs> well, on the immortal words of the X-Files Fox Mulder, we want to believe. We hope that you've enjoyed yet another installment of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Thanks so much for listening. Hey, real quick, call to action. I think Eric would agree. We'd like to grow this Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Absolutely. If you could, if you're listening on Apple, if you would go and give us a review and, and rate us. And if you have some feedback, that's fine too. Uh, whatever, whatever platform you're listening, follow us, rate us, give us some reviews. That helps get some recognition. And gets our name out there. We do have a Facebook page, Nightmares on the Lost Highway. You can easily find us if you want to communicate with us. If you want to share some uh, possibilities for future podcasts with us, you know, reach out. We want to talk with you guys. You took my headline. Did I really? You did, Piedmont. Oh. Yep. <laughs> a, a, well, then let's, okay, let's back that up. Well, I, I told you that my my stepdad claimed he saw a cell phone. A cell phone. <laughs> he saw a cell phone one time. I, he saw a cell phone. Yeah, but but. Want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. 
I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing, and thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. And I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love. But we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as, hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.